0: I'm Preston, and this is the Consciousness Podcast, where each week I have a conversation with an expert in human consciousness. This week, I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Dean Radin, Chief Scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. And our conversation, I'd say, surrounded the topic of scientific study of the foundation of psi phenomena and consciousness. Dr. Radin earned an MS in electrical engineering and a PhD in psychology from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Before joining the research staff at Noetic Sciences in 2001, he held appointments at AT AT&T Bell Labs, Princeton University, University of Edinburgh, and SRI International. He is author and co-author of over 250 technical and popular articles, three dozen book chapters, and three books including the best-selling Consciousness Universe, Entangled Minds, and the 2014 Silver Nautilus Book Award winner, Supernormal. His latest book, Real Magic, is available now at booksellers everywhere. We had a fascinating discussion, so please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Dean Radin.
1: All right, Dr. Radin, well, I appreciate you uh, joining us at the the Consciousness Podcast. It's uh, it's an honor to have you here to do this. So um, I guess real quick, if you want to, um, here I'm going to jump kind of to the end there, but maybe tell us a little bit about... Your background and what you're doing at the uh, Institute of Noetic Sciences and then we'll, we'll get into talking about consciousness.
2: Okay. Well, my, my background uh, initially was in music. I was in violin performance for many years. Oh. And, and then uh, in college I began to learn that uh, you could make a living as a musician, but it, it's tough. It's very tough. Yes. So, I asked around on what what else do people do that uh, where they could play music for fun and not have to become an athlete essentially to make a living as a musician. Right. And uh, my my family's uh, friends and other colleagues uh, said, well, if you can do engineering, that that always can be a good job. So I ended up getting a, my undergraduate degree in electrical engineering, and uh, not. Not so much because I was particularly interested in electrical engineering, but it was something I was good at, and, right. and I figured, well, it's a good starting spot anyway. So I went on right. to get a, a master's in electrical engineering, uh, primarily because I didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up, uh, and also because I got a research assistantship, and which would have paid for graduate school. Great. At that point, I still didn't know what I wanted to do, although I knew I did not want to work as an electrical engineer, even though at that time it was actually kind of fun. Um, so I took a, a, a vocational inventory test that they offered uh, for students where they would uh, the test would measure your personality and they would match it against people who were happy in different professions that had that same personality, and so I took that test, and the, the number one thing it came up with was policemen. And the second thing was priest. And the third thing was a social science research. Well, I, I understood why policemen and priests came up, because they both have to do with social justice, which I've always been mm. interested in. But mm-hmm. I, I'm not built to be a policeman, and I'm not particularly religious, so priest was out. So social science research sounded interesting, and that's one of the reasons why I ended up getting a, my PhD in psychology. Right. So uh, after I graduated, I worked at Bell Laboratories uh, for a number of years and, uh, and later at GTE Laboratories. But ever since I was a teenager, I'd always been interested in phenomena related to consciousness. And mm. when I was going through graduate school even, there, there was no academic Uh, track to be interested in consciousness with the exception of philosophy. And most of the philosophy I took was uh, mind-numbingly boring. So (laughs) I just sort of set it aside. And when I was at Bell Laboratories, I started looking into Murphy's Law as more than something that was simply a funny lab lore, but maybe Mm. something that had something true underneath it. And of course, Murphy's Law is... Uh, This idea that in in any environment, but usually in technical environments, that anything that can go wrong will go wrong. And there are many corollaries to Murphy's Law, and we laugh at them, except that I I found after a couple of years working at Bell Labs, usually on big projects with 20 to 50 people, where there were people developing hardware and developing software, that we get to a point where we were going to demonstrate a system we had been working on for a couple of years to some dignitary, like a visiting senator or or a Mm -hmm. vice president or something like that. And in almost every case, there were certain people who were not allowed to be present during the demonstrations. These were typically the lead software engineer or the lead hardware engineer because they were the ones who had the most anxiety about the thing working. Right. And so I thought, well, okay, that's Murphy's Law. We're just playing a superstition here to, to avoid the possibility that uh, their anxiety is going to mess up the works because we knew from previous experience that occasionally they would. They'd be present and right. is press to turn the thing on and then nothing happens. And of course all eyes right. tor- point towards uh, the person who was in charge. So this sounded to me similar to what I had read in the literature of parapsychology about mind-matter interaction. And I thought, okay, let's do an experiment to see if I can replicate what I had read about because it's relevant to this lore, this superstitious lore that we see here in the laboratory. So I got permission to do experiments and I ended up publishing a couple of them where I was able to reproduce the experiments I had read about. And that was the first time that I was, I was hooked into the idea that you could apply the tools of science even to strange things like psychic phenomena and mind-matter interaction. And not only do that, but you can also get interesting results. So mm-hmm. from that point until now is, is about 30 years. And I've worked at most of the laboratories around the world where you can do this kind of research. And since 2001, I've been at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, which was started by Edgar Mitchell, the Apollo 14 astronaut who was the sixth to walk on the moon.
1: Who had some pretty amazing experiences of his own on his return.
2: He did. So the the reason why he started our institute, and which in retrospect would have been odd, and even he considered it odd, he was a, a Navy pilot and an MIT engineer and so on. Not the kind of person who you would think could be interested in mystical experience. Right. And yet that is exactly what he experienced on, on the way back to the earth. So he didn't know what that experience was other than describing it as a feeling of unity with the entire universe, which was shocking and it lasted for quite a while. So when mm-hmm. he came back to earth the very next year, it would have been 1973, I decided to create an institute to do research using the tools of science to figure out what in the world that was meaning what what is what does it mean to have a a, psych, a a mystical experience or a psychic experience and how do we fit it in with the rest of what we understand about the world from from a scientific perspective
1: right and so that's what you guys are doing now is exploring those those notions
2: right so when I started in 2001, I was the primary lab guy. I started the laboratory on campus. Uh, we now have 11 scientists uh, representing uh, disciplines of uh, neuroscience, uh, molecular biology, computer science, engineering, psychology, clinical psychology, psychophysiology, uh, and physics. So. We're a multidisciplinary team. We all come mm-hmm. from traditional backgrounds. Almost everyone has uh, a doctoral degree. Almost everyone has years of experience working in the academic or the industrial research world. But we'd simply decided uh, that at this stage in our careers, some of us are in senior levels, some are more junior levels, that this is the most interesting thing we can think of. It's, we we think of it as the leading edge of science. Right. We're exploring just beyond the bounds of what science has accommodated, which is the most exciting place
1: to be. Well, fantastic. Yeah, I'm glad you guys are doing the work you're doing. It's, uh, you know, as a a side comment, this is not about me, this is about you, but it's interesting. I started my life off as a musician, went to college to be a musician, and my my musician grandfather said, don't do it, it's too hard, and I ended up studying engineering. It was funny to, to hear that. Yeah, to hear that here I am talking to people about psi and consciousness, and so it's uh, just interesting, Interesting coincidences.
2: Yeah, well, I'd, I had the same thing. I, I had a, an uncle who played the viola on Broadway professionally. That was mm. his career, and and I said, well, I can do it. I know I'm good enough to be able to do that. And he said, if you can do anything else, don't do it.
1: It's too hard. <laughs> he said, play music, enjoy it as a hobby, but don't try to make a living. Exactly. Yeah. Well, interesting. So given, given all that, that's really uh, an amazing history and story. And I'm glad that you do have this team of wonderful people who all love what they're doing. Um, This being a consciousness specific podcast, um, how, how do you, you know, given all the studies you've done, the experiences you've had, everything that you've seen, you know, what, what is, what does consciousness mean to you? I I don't want you to define it like a textbook, but what does consciousness mean to you? you know, in terms of the, the science and the philosophy and everything around that?
2: Well, the main puzzle about consciousness is subjective awareness. So that's, while it includes much more than that, uh, right. everything having to do with mind, with cognition, with perception, the whole, and the neuroscience, it's all about consciousness. Uh, but the puzzle underneath it is, uh, how is it that the three Pounds of tissue inside your skull is aware of itself. And right. how is it that it has created models of reality, some of which have been tested to 10 or 12 decimal places, and it works? That sounds ridiculous that it could be so good. So how does that come about?
1: Yeah, so how does it emerge? And I guess we'll start talking about that a little bit. Because um, it does seem like a lot of your out of the work and the studies, you know, and, and in my research, um, the Murphy's Law study, you know, escapes my findings, which I'm, I'm totally fascinated by the work you did on that. But, you know, your double slit experiment, which seems to be, you know, the, the most famous one, at least at the moment, and the random number generator and your being stared at study, um, seems to revolve around the concept of we are all part of this interconnected whole. Mm hmm. So, you know, can you kind of explain what you mean by that and what that is?
2: Well, in, in trying to shoehorn subjective awareness into the prevailing mm-hmm. scientific worldview, uh, we're, we're stuck with reductive materialism because that's the philosophical underpinnings of what we think consciousness is. This is why uh, many neuroscientists will have a... Uh, will the, think of the correlations and neural correlates of consciousness, and they'll assume that mm-hmm. the arrow of causation goes from brain to consciousness, that it generates right. it, it emerges it somehow. That kind of works for, uh, for for the neurosciences as they stand today. It's the reason why we can create brain-activated computers and that sort of thing. It doesn't work so well. The moment you start think, thinking about and looking at phenomena that don't that don't seem to be compatible with a materialistic viewpoint and what I mean is let's let's say th- this is not exactly answering your question but it'll get to there eventually let's say that you're you're interested in experiences of telepathy so this doesn't mean mind reading it means more like simply feeling somebody else's mental or mm-hmm. physical state uh, or emotional state at a distance telepathy sure. literally means um, feeling at a distance So, how does does that come about? Well, the the term mental radio was used in the 1920s and 30s because it was a way of, at least as a metaphorical way, of thinking about how you would send a signal from here to there. And to this day, we talk about senders and receivers, but we don't mean to imply that there's an electromagnetic signal or any kind of signal that has to be sent and decoded on the other side. And the reason is that uh, over at least 80 years now, people have explicitly tested to see if it's an electromagnetic signal, uh, a very high frequency, very low frequency. It's been tested with enormous amounts of shielding, uh, of of mu metal, of seawater, and so on. And none of that seems to make any difference at all. To say nothing of distance not making Mm. a difference. So we're hmm. probably not talking about signal passing. So what right. else is there? Well, we're looking at a, the phenomenon as a correlation. It's a, 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 a coincidence in the literal sense, two things coinciding at the same time, but oftentimes separated by far distance. Well, how do we understand that? If it's not a signal, then it's either arising from a common source and this is where this interconnected idea comes from, that if at some deep level everything is basically a holistic mishmash, it's one thing, then if you have something arising out of that into the everyday world <clears throat> from two things can be very far separated from each other, but if it came from the same source, they can arise and coexist at the same time. Co coincidence. Except right. it's not a coincidence. It would say that some deep level, two people are not different from each other. Well, this idea has been around since William James. Over 100 years ago, there were people were talking in these terms, but we didn't have any physical correlate to that at all. Up until now, we can talk about it in terms of quantum entanglement, which is mm-hmm. a known physical thing that seems to connect objects at far distances without any intervening signals or anything. So we, don't, we still don't understand exactly exactly how quantum entanglement works, we have the mathematics for it, and we can show that it works in the laboratory. But how how it works and what it says about the under underpinnings, what kind of reality there is in in a deep sense, uh, is still a, ma- a matter of speculation. So. I would say, then, that the, the sense of interconnectedness or a holistic environment, today I would talk about it in terms of what the implications are of quantum mechanics. That simply from entanglement alone, we appear to live in a, a non-local environment. Non-local meaning that uh, things are connected independent of distance and space or time. And since we can now, this is no longer even a question as to whether non-locality exists. We can demonstrate it in the lab. In fact, I'm looking at my desk and I see an apparatus that uh, we bought for an experiment that produces entangled photons on a desktop. Mm. These are high quality entangled photons, about a thousand per second are generated. And you just need the right kind of optical system and you need the right kind of photon counter and you can demonstrate it to anybody in a matter of a couple of minutes.
1: So- wow, I didn't, I didn't know. You. I know the Chinese had, I think, entangled two. I don't, I don't know what particles, but one here and one out in space. Which I guess once you, once you identify that, that's what happens. The the notion of going from here to space you know, is rather trivial. But it's. Uh, I didn't know you had something on your desk where you could actually do that.
2: Yeah, there's a company in Germany called Qtools, qutools.com, and they sell a system to demonstrate entanglement. So it it costs about uh, $20,000. So we got a grant, we were able to buy this thing, and some of the experiments we're running now are using the entangled photons in an experiment on mind-matter interaction, where the the task, similar to the double-slit task, where you're looking at the interaction between mind and photons here too, we're looking at mind photon interaction, but we're measuring the strength of the correlation. to See if the mind can modulate the strength of correlation and entangled photons. And that, that mm-hmm. would have been extremely expensive to do 10 years ago, but now it's within the realm where you can buy the apparatus that just does it.
1: Wow. Yeah. It's pretty phenomenal. And I know, uh, it's interesting you mentioned the quantum aspect of it. I've had a couple conversations. Uh, one with Dr. Dr. Kelly out at University of Virginia, and then a week or two ago, I talked to Dr. Amit Goswami about you know his quantum consciousness theory. And one of the things that seems to be surfacing is how quantum theory is is uh, you know wave theory. You know it was you know particle and then particle wave duality, and now now we're in field field theory where it's almost like air, I guess the concept is, and you could probably explain to me, is, you know, every electron is part of the same electron field and it's everywhere in the universe.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so it's, it's, almost, it's almost like we're seeing that, you know, field theory in, in quantum physics starting to, you know, maybe not experimentally yet, but at least in theory start to explain some of this interconnectedness that, you know, we've been observing and feeling but haven't really been able to, to nail down yet.
2: Right. I think we're at the very earliest stages of understanding even what we're, what quantum mechanics is trying to tell us. And quantum yeah. mechanics is not the end of physics. It's, in some respects, it's the beginning of physics. Right. right? And each stage, we look back on 400 or 500 years of the development of science, it, it took us hundreds of years, hundreds and hundreds of years to get up through classical physics, up to about 1900. And then over the course of the 20th century, huge radical changes from classical to quantum mechanics and also in many other fields. So we're now at the beginning of the 21st century, and I think there will be, and we have already seen, other radical changes, which will again completely change our notions of what we think of as the nature of physical reality. And I think more excitingly that during this century, we may also find that uh, what we would think of previously as a mental reality, I think mental reality and physical reality are very intimately related to each other. And by the end of this century, we'll have a much better sense of how they actually work together.
1: Yeah, that's exciting. So let's uh, let's take that right into your experiment. And, and like I mentioned in my questions, um, I don't I don't know if at this point in your life you're getting sick of having to explain this, um, but yeah, I'd love to give like a, a quick. Layman's overview of what your, your double-slit experiment is, and I guess you probably have to give us a little bit of background on what it is in the quantum physics world, and then, and then what you saw from your results and, and maybe what conclusions you've kind of drawn or what other questions you see need to be answered as a result of, of this work.
2: Okay. So for many years, people have been interested in uh, what is the role of intention or attention in the physical world? So there's an obvious one. Somebody can dream about a car and then make a car. So that starts in your mind mm-hmm. and ends up through your hands to make a car. But here we're talking about a more direct uh, experience of I, I want something to happen and without apparently doing anything, it happens. This was initially studied in the 1930s by things like throwing dice. I want I want a six to show up. So you throw a die and you wish for a six and then you do it again, you do it millions of times, and eventually you can come out with a statistical answer as to whether or not your wish or intention turns into an outcome that you want. So many such tests were done. Statistically, it shows that there is an effect. It's fairly weak, but there shouldn't be any effect at all from any classical perspective or even quantum perspective. There's no, nothing right. that would predict that the mind should be able to push the world around in a probabilistic way. So then uh, for about 50 years now, rather than using dice, uh, electronic random number generators were developed, which are essentially electronic coin flippers, where the source of randomness is not like a die bouncing a couple times, but a quantum mechanically random source, which is considered to be fundamentally unpredictable. So that's right. would use that. So again this is the same or similar type of task except in this case it's easy to have a computer record all of the results so that you know you're not making any recording mistakes and you assign somebody to make make random bits deviate one direction or the other and there's lots of data there as well it says something again is a a real effect it's quite weak uh, but it's statistically undeniable. So and thinking about all this, uh, what those experiments suggest is that when the mind is directed towards some sort of object, that the, the the object changes its behavior in some way, in a probabilistic way. The problem with these all of these realms of experiment is that they don't match anything else within mainstream physics or psychology or anywhere. It's one of the reasons why this kind of research is, has been more or less ignored outside the field, because why would anybody want to do this other than maybe go into a casino and try to win something? So in thinking about that, I decided mm-hmm. to take advantage of an outstanding puzzle within quantum mechanics, uh, which is, by meaning it's, a, it's an unresolved important issue within f- mainstream physics, that is actually very, very close to what people have done previously with dice and with, with random number generators. And that involves this apparatus called the double slit optical system. So the way it works, the, the this was voted by the way, the, the most beautiful experiment in physics by uh, hmm. a physics magazine a couple of years ago, because it's so simple, and yet it also shows something which is so radical that we don't even understand why it works. So you take a light source, could be a laser or an incandescent lamp. If it's a laser, you just shine the laser through two tiny little slits. The slits are typically in the order of about 10 microns across. That's 10 millionths of a meter uh, and maybe one or 200 microns uh, apart from each other. So you make the light beam go through both slits. And then the pattern that the light produces after it goes through the slits impinges on a camera. So... What th- This original experiment was performed by a guy named Thomas Young hundreds of years ago to demonstrate mm-hmm. that light has the characteristics of a wave. And he was able to show that because when you shine light through two double slits, or two, two, two slits close to each other, where the size of the slit is, uh, is close to the wavelength of the light itself, that you'll see that it produces a ripply pattern. It's called an interference pattern. So you can mm-hmm. see that pattern on the on the camera screen and you can use wave mechanics, which assumes that light is in fact a wave. You can do the mathematics of the wave mechanics to show that it will behave exactly like water waves. You'll get a ripply pattern of a certain type and it conforms right. almost exactly, <clears throat> not almost, almost, it deforms exactly the way as though photons are actually little tiny waves. Mm-hmm. So... For a couple hundred years, people thought, okay, I guess light is a wave until Einstein and his buddies came along and uh, demonstrated through things like the photoelectric effect that light also behaves like a particle, that it it seems to be like a little packet of energy. And other methods are used to to demonstrate that. So the double-slit apparatus is an interesting one because you can – if you just set it up and nobody is nobody's paying attention to which of the two slits the, the packets of energy are going through, they do, in fact, behave like waves. It, it is as though a single photon as a wave goes through both of the slits at the same time. You get this ripply pattern, the interference pattern. And so what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is if you take a photodetector and you put it behind one of the slits so you can tell which of the two slits the photon goes through, then mm-hmm. all you will ever see are, are a diffraction pattern, which it means that it's acting like a like little BBs or, or little bullets. Right, well, it's particle. Under, yeah, it's a particle. So it, this th- this has been done in many clever ways to show that it's not that the photons are interacting with each other because photons don't interact with each other. Uh, they're not being disturbed by the fo- by the photodetector. There are ways of doing this where you simply gain information about which of the two slits the photon goes through. It's called gaining which path information. And the mm. moment you can do that, or even in principle can do that, you, you will no longer see waves. You'll mm. only see particles. So this gives rise to the idea that somehow the photon knows whether somebody knows which of the two paths that it took. If you know which of the two paths, then it its behavior is different than if you don't know. So this immediately brings in what's now sometimes referred to as the quantum observer effect. Mm -hmm. There's many different ways of doing this now. There's something called the quantum Zeno effect and a few others, all of which have to do with the way that you measure what's happening in photons changes their behavior, even if you don't touch the photons. So this opens a little door into physics, mainstream physics, it says there's something peculiar about the nature of observation that is changing the way that light is behaving. So many of the founders of quantum mechanics and up to the present day have wondered whether there's something peculiar about consciousness that is conceived of as a non-physical thing, which, which changes the nature of how the physical world works. And I'm not gonna go through that whole history because it's a long, very long story. But there, there is one of the interpretations of quantum mechanics. If you go to Wikipedia and you start looking up interpretations of quantum mechanics, you'll see around a dozen mm-hmm. of them. One of which says that consciousness is important because it's the thing that causes the quantum potential states to turn into the actual classical states that we see in the everyday world. So this is now a, this is a testable question. And if you look in the mainstream literature, you'll find a couple of mainstream prominent physicists saying things like i wonder if the human mind is related in some way to the behavior of quantum events and wouldn't it be interesting to do such an experiment and maybe in 50 years somebody'll do it and we'll find out what the answer is so, so we decided came along. yeah well we decided not to wait for 50 years cuz why bother yeah so we did a we have a double slit optical system we actually had four of them, we're working on the fifth now, fifth-generation version. To see what would happen if you simply asked somebody to think about, like direct your mind to the double slit, and imagine that you could see which of the two slits that the photons were going through. And some people have a good enough imagination that they can do that, and others are not so good. So we help the person doing the experiment by giving them real-time feedback about how much interference the camera is seeing at any given time. So if the photons, if there was perfect identification of which path information, then there would be no interference at all, and you would get a very different signal coming out of the for the feedback signal than if you got no which path information, in which case you'd have a perfect interference pattern. So you can do very simple mathematics on what the camera is looking at to tell you, are we seeing wave-like behavior or particle-like behavior? You can turn that in real time into a a tone or the changing of a volume or uh, a picture on a screen. There's lots of different methods that we've used for feedback. So a person doing the task doesn't even need to know what the nature of the target is, all they need to know is uh, you're, you're hearing a tone, I want you to make the pitch go up. If right. the pitch goes up, we can link that to more particle behavior rather than more wave behavior. Hmm. So we've done many different variations of this kind of experiment and, uh, and find that when people direct their attention towards the double-slit system, the behavior of the photon changes it doesn't always change in the direction that we wanted to change. But as compared to a baseline, it is no longer behaving like the baseline does when attention is directed towards the system. So we ended up doing 17 experiments. We published all of them in physics journals. And within the the past year, a colleague at the university of Sao Paulo has repeated the experiment nine times. Uh, He's, uh, physicist. Yeah, I
1: enjoyed your quote about his reaction to it.
2: Yeah, so he's, he's he was at CERN doing research with the Large Hadron Collider and read about our studies and thought that that was more interesting than yet another yeah. uh, collider experiment. So he, mm-hmm. he was Brazilian, he went back to Brazil, he got a an appointment at the university in Sao Paulo, and set it up on an optical bench and did all of the things you're supposed to do to make it work right. And Brazilian culture is way more open to these kinds of phenomena. I'm talking about psychic hmm. phenomena. So right. it was relatively right. easy for him to recruit friends who were very open to the idea that their minds can push things around. And he was able to replicate what we saw so his his paper's not yet published. It's in a it's one of the physics archives, and he's getting feedback from colleagues around the world. Uh, but this is the first completely independent replication of the effect that we saw. i'm I'm not completely surprised. I mean, after running the, the experiment as we did for many years, I'm reasonably sure that what we're seeing is real and not on some set of artifact or something. right so i I helped him. Uh, With advice on the strangeness of doing this sort of experiment, because it's not just a physics experiment and it's not just a psychology experiment. It's some strange combination of both. It requires heavy duty, rigorous physics to get it right, to get the signal right. And then it takes very careful and sensitive psychological components to get people to engage with the system in just the right way. So, we spent, he actually spent a month in my lab to see how we do it, and then he went back home and made his own version of it, and, and it worked.
1: And you said the people in Brazil are more open-minded to the, the, the psi phenomena. Did you see any difference in, And I don't know if deviation is the right term, but did you see any significant difference in that, the deviation from the baseline and his results from yours, anything measurable?
2: Well, his overall result, in one way of looking at it, is a 4.7 sigma result after nine mm-hmm. experiments. So 4.7 sigma is almost at the at the level of 5 sigma, which in physics is considered to be a discovery. So okay. as an example, the, <clears throat> the uh, discovery of the Higgs boson was a 5 sigma result, and the discovery of the gravitational wave was a 5 sigma result. Both of them okay. ended up getting the Nobel Prize. Right. So he's at 4.7 wow. sigma in his experiments. Ours ended up being about the same. So okay. I wouldn't say that he got a, a bigger result than we did or a more robust result. Uh, I would say instead that it was easier for him to find the right kind of participants or maybe easier to, mm-hmm. to simply through word of mouth to find people who were excited about it and ready and willing to do it. That's not to say that we didn't either. I mean, we, we did find enough people to do the experiments, something like a 120 over uh, the length of these experiments. Uh, but it took more effort to find people who were, right. were able to do it and willing to
1: do it. Okay. So what, you know, given given these findings, these pretty significant, you know, results that you guys are getting over and over again, what, you know, what, what does this mean for consciousness or what are the implications or, you know, kind of what, what conclusions might you draw or, or what else do you want to look at in the future, you know, regarding consciousness?
2: Well, it informs one of the dozen or so interpretations of what quantum mechanics is all about. And in that Mm -hmm. sense it's extremely important because quantum mechanics has been estimated to account for about 30 percent of the world's economy through computing and communications technology. So we're using a very effective mathematical tool, but we, in terms of the interpretation or the ontological meaning of it, we don't actually know yet. So this is a way of empirically informing then what do we think is actually happening. And it goes back to people like, like uh, Schrodinger and uh, not Einstein to some extent, uh, John von Neumann. These are all people who are mm-hmm. the figures who created quantum mechanics. All of them were thinking about there's something strange about consciousness because it doesn't seem to be physical. And we're talking about subjective awareness. It doesn't. It doesn't have properties like physical things that we know. So maybe that's that's the necessary element to. Take this quantum potential and make it an actual, make it real.
1: Right.
2: This, of course, then immediately fits into the philosophical assumption of or philosophical stance of idealism, and if and which is the polar opposite of materialism. Mm-hmm. Right. So scientific worldview assumes that everything's made out of matter and energy, and everything that's that's it. That's your baseline. That's materialism. Right. Idealism says that actually everything that we know, including our ideas about material, about, about physical laws, about anything, it all devolves back into our awareness. Because if we weren't aware, then we wouldn't be making measurements. We wouldn't, we wouldn't be aware of anything. So there'd be no physics, right. you no know, nothing. So that, from that perspective, everything that we know in science And literally everything that we know, everything we can experience is an inference. And in many ways, that actually is what we know from science. Scientists, I mean, having gone through an engineering curriculum, you get a certain sense of power after a while where you feel that you you know how to make things work, right? You know Mm -hmm. how to put things together and you can make an iPhone. So it, it gives you a kind of false confidence that you actually know what's going on. Even though at base, we don't even know what an electron is. We don't know what a photon actually is. It does certain things in a reliable way so we can use it. Right. And all of the laws, all of the things, all of the uh, the ways we think about things are then become inferences. And we believe in the inference because it seems to work often enough. Uh, so the The danger with idealism as a philosophical stance is that you, it can easily turn into solipsism in which nothing is real. It's all like mind stuff, and and there is there are branches of right. Buddhism and so on that believe that that is in fact the case. Well, I don't mm-hmm. go that far. I'm saying that the there is a real world of some type out there, but we can only know it as an inference. The inference can be pretty solid. And then things act in certain ways, but it's still only an inference. The reason why idealism, I think, is a better model for thinking about how these phenomena work is because it it means that if we change our inference, change our expectations about how something manifests, well, maybe that actually changes it. I mean, if it's coming out of consciousness in the first place, well, maybe our consciousness is is making things happen somehow. So the one of the ways, and the occasionally we'll talk to a, a participant in one of our experiments in these terms and say, well, if you're having trouble imagining how you're going to push a photon around, just rather think of it slightly differently and imagine that that you are the photon. Your, your sense of thinking about a photon is actually creating it in some sense. And so imagine you're the photon mm-hmm. and you, you simply want to do something. You are it. And that's, for some people, makes it easier to do these experiments uh, because then they don't have to imagine they're pushing on it or that there's some kind of force coming out of their hands or their, their brain or something. Uh, right. They become the thing itself. And that, I think, actually is what, what, is, what is going on in these experiments. So the, the upshot is that the uh, the implications of all this for our understanding of consciousness is that it it goes from... A purely materialistic way of thinking about it to one which is the flip side from a philosophical stance.
1: Yeah, and it, it, I think it's what you, you alluded to in the beginning. It made me think: is it, it's, it's almost like your experiments may not bring it back to materialism, but at least makes that connection between the material side of things versus the the conscious quantum side of things. Is that, that those two might end up melding together?
2: right right okay. because i i'm I'm not a solipsist. I think that there there really is a real material world uh, right that It may emerge in the same way that uh, water emerges out of the two atoms which happen to be put together in the right way, so it could be an emergent property, but I think under underneath all of it is something like a primordial awareness that's simply part of the fabric of reality.
1: Yeah, well, it's fascinating. Um, yeah, along those lines, I, I noticed that you observed in the double slit experiment differences between those who meditate and those who don't, uh, I just, am, I'm curious as to why you made that distinction or what jumped out at you that made you, um, you know, look at the two differences and, you know, why, why did you look at, and, and were there, did you see, I don't remember if there were significant differences in results between those who meditate and those who don't
2: yeah, there tend to be differences. and the the reason is very simple that uh, that the experiment requires that you direct your attention towards something mm-hmm. and then you pull it away. And that means you need to have some control over where your attention is. And right. meditators is meditation's all about attention training. So I wanted to work with people who, when I said, put your attention in that little box over there and he, and leave it there for thirty seconds, and now withdraw your attention and put it somewhere else for 30 seconds. I wanted somebody who is able to do that. Because right. the average person who's, who doesn't have attention training can do it for about two or three seconds, and then their mind immediately wanders.
1: Right. Yeah, so no, I'm, I'm, I'm laughing only because I, I do meditate, and I know exactly what you're talking about, and, and the, your mind just seems to secrete these, these random thoughts to try to pull you away from that. And so it, it's interesting you know, that you came to that, the realize that say, yeah, let's get, you know, look at meditators because they actually can focus and affect the results more. I I just find it interesting. Right. All right. All right. We're cooking, cooking along here. I don't want to end up taking too much of your time. Um, I guess I'll throw this, especially with, with this double slit experiment. Um, so with all my guests, I always do research. I try to go find your your papers and your books and your videos and, you know, try to come up with, you know, some questions that are at least interesting. Mm-hmm. And in your in your case, and this may just be confirmation bias on my part, just having noticed something once and then started seeing it over and over. But it seems like there's a lot of criticism. You know, it seems like a lot of people out there, you know, like you said in the beginning, I think you, you mentioned that they kind of ignore it because they're really not quite ready for the implications or it's not something that you know. What what I can't make an 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 engine part out of this, or I can't go to space with this. Although I think you and I probably think that that's coming. But you know, if why do you think you get, or do you agree with me that you get a lot of criticism? And if you do, why do you think so much criticism comes your way for these from these experiments?
2: Well, in in one sense, if you're not getting criticism, then you're not doing something that's important. Yeah. Right, so uh, I I don't mind criticism. I much prefer constructive criticism. Uh, a lot of it is not very constructive, which mm-hmm. I see is completely worthless and I actually don't pay any attention to it. But if a colleague somewhere reads a paper and says, well, what about this thing? Did you think of this or what about that? That's constructive and that's extremely valuable. Right, so it I, advances
1: your your message. Yeah, it just
2: it makes my work better. That's, I mean, what's better than that? Uh, And I'm under no illusion that everything I'm doing is 100% correct. So uh, if somebody can spot a flaw, I'm very grateful to hear about that. Unfortunately, a lot of the criticism, especially that you see in forums and blogs and so on, a lot of it is very uninformed. It's... It's the projection of somebody's prejudice, or it's something that somebody heard from somebody else. And when you start digging down into the vast majority of critiques, not only about my work, but about the whole domain of cyber search, most of it is based on prejudice. And, mm. and it's, it comes out of most scientists and academics, and even most lay people, being trained into a certain view of reality scientific worldview. And they, so they view anything that is not within that worldview as being obviously incorrect. And so if you start from that perspective, that this cannot be right, then you're left with only two choices. Either the person has made a serious mistake or they're fraudulent. That's all that's left. And so right. a fair amount of the criticism that, that I see, which I consider to be invalid, is based on those two assumptions rather than actually looking at what was actually done and saying, well, you know, maybe this is wrong or maybe that is wrong. And because we've gotten so much feedback over the years, we're pretty sure that we haven't made any simple mistakes.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it does seem that way. I mean, obviously, I'm not I'm not qualified to get in there and dig around your work and all the data, but it seems like from the the, the legitimate criticisms you've gotten and the questions that have been thrown at you, you know the the answers have been pretty pretty solid, and the people have seemed overall, with some exceptions, to accept it. So it, it does seem like it's helped. You oh, know, at least help. solidify the whole the whole position here. Yeah.
2: Yeah. well, Constructive criticism is absolute necessity, and when you do science, yeah. uh, And so we we value it. It's just unfortunate that that's not what most of it is. Yeah. And, and as I the said, also, do come in. As I also said, though, that if if you're not making people pay attention to something, if it's not perceived as being important in some way, well, that's how a lot of academia is that the only people who pay attention to your work are those within a very small slice of, of your own discipline. And then you'll find, Mm -hmm. you'll find people screaming at each other all the time. That's how the academic world works. And the, the goal of the screaming is to help sharpen what, what is being portrayed. But, uh, in our case, because unfortunately, uh, psychic phenomena are so in the public mind anyway, are so closely associated with entertainment, with ideas within religion, yeah. with the supernatural, and so on. It makes it more difficult to to have a uh,
1: a useful dialogue with people. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. You know, speaking of the the psi phenomena, what you know, especially as it relates to consciousness, what other Research have you done? And I guess now that I think about it, I should also tack on to this question: um, What else do you have planned? So, what what have you looked at also in the past that I haven't we haven't talked about regarding psi phenomena and consciousness? And also, do you have further experiments or um, expansions on existing experiments to do in the future?
2: Well, over, over the years, I've looked at basically uh, every every kind of of psi phenomena. That you at least that you could study in the laboratory context. So that includes uh, precognition, conscious precognition, uh, presentiment, which is a physiological form of precognition uh, or an unconscious form. Uh, um, We've looked at uh, clairvoyance. We've looked at otherwise known as remote viewing. That's more or less what I was doing when I was doing this kind of work for the U.S. government. a wide variety of different ways of looking at mind matter interaction, from analogs of distant healing uh, to the feeling of being stared at to uh, the effect of intention on water, on food substances, on plant growth, uh, and so on. So, lot, wow. lots of different ways of looking at the various phenomena. And in each case, the fun part and the challenge is to figure out how do you take a reported phenomenon and figure out a way of studying it in a in a rigorous laboratory context. So outside of the laboratory, uh, some of my work has also looked at collective consciousness effects. So we've we've done, for example, five experiments looking at collective consciousness at Burning Man to, to see whether an isolated group of 70,000 people in the middle of nowhere uh, when they focus on the two major events at Burning Man, which is the burning of the man effigy and the burning mm-hmm. of the temple, does that change the environment in some way? Well, people anecdotally say that they can feel it. They feel some sort of electricity in the air or something like that. Can we measure that? So that's what we've done as well.
1: And, and just uh, real quick, did you did you find anything there?
2: Yeah, we did. We, we tried... Um, many different kinds of random number generators, including a new type that we built ourselves. And in each case, we found some evidence that the generators behave differently during the two main events as compared to the days before and the days after. And overall, it's pretty clear that, yeah, something energetically or informationally changed since a random number generator is really just measuring degrees of entropy that there are right. entropic changes during these large-scale attentional events. So that's what, well, that's that's what cool. I've been doing. So my colleagues have been expanding this by looking at precognition in other ways through implicit behavioral ways, precognition. Uh, we've been doing a series of studies on mediumship. Uh, we've just begun to study a series of studies on channeling. So a medium is somebody who... Who like a psychic who believes that they talk to dead people? Uh, channeling is a specialized type of medium who, rather than mentally talking to someone, allows the sub thing or someone to talk through them, as though you're, mm-hmm. you know, they they you talk through them somehow. Right. So we're in the process right now of studying trance channels, who are channels who go either go completely out of the way that their their ordinary personality is way in the background and in extreme cases they're unaware of anything that they say afterwards they'd have to ask hmm. somebody else what did what did the entity say well these are not quite that to that level of depth they knew, they do know what's being said but they don't interfere with whatever is right. going through them so we're looking at the neuroscience of what's happening in the brain of somebody who goes into that very strange trance state.
1: Well, interesting. I look forward to, to read more about that when it comes out. Yeah. Um, and I think this is my last specific question and then we'll I'll ask my wrap up question, but I, I think I already, I think we already covered this, but I want to ask it just in case we didn't. Um, I listened to your story about you know, synchronicity about when you moved in next door to PsyQuest labs Mm-hmm. and that was really really fascinating you know I, I enjoyed that and in there in in the interview you were giving about this you you mentioned the the concept of you know consciousness that 's emerging into the world at large you know that like brought you two together you know can you expand or have you already you know the concepts you 've already talked about about you know consciousness being part of the quantum world does that does that already explain it or is there anything else you'd like to add to this concept of you know, consciousness emerging into the world.
2: I would think about it slightly differently now from, from then. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's not so much that consciousness emerges into the world mm-hmm. as much as it's always there in the background. And it is almost a behind the scenes of yeah. uh, uh, entity or that's not quite the right word, but it's a behind the scenes force that shapes how things manifest. So, In the case, uh, this was me and the guy's name was John. We were both in our own way, very strongly focusing on wanting something. He wanted me to show up. I wanted his lab, basically, Mm -hmm. or the stuff in his lab. So all of that wanting on both of our parts uh, created the rough equivalent of a gravitational force that literally pulled ourselves together, physically pulled together. Right which is why we ended up adjacent offices and yeah. basically in, in an impossible coincidence. Right. So, so the consciousness is, if you think of this from an idealistic perspective, everything that physically manifests is in, initially coming out of this consciousness substance, for want of a better term. It is emerging out of that. So if your consciousness is strongly wanting something to manifest, it will it will manifest. And so you have two people who are wanting about the same thing. It will manifest and get drawn together at mm. the same
1: time. Interesting. Interesting. And uh, I hope that doesn't come across as making light of that, but it's almost like the the notion of soulmates.
2: Well, it's or two people or wanting
1: a similar thing and they get attracted through the consciousness and through the, those fields.
2: Yes. Yes. It is also the, the essence of esoteric magic. That's why this book that's Mm. that's coming out in April is basically looking at uh, a long tradition, going back is actually from the beginning of recorded history, on a hidden parallel track of the way of thinking about the nature of reality. It's not really hidden because you can go on the internet and find thousands of books about all this stuff. Right. and But it's, it's hidden in the sense that from a scientific worldview perspective, it is considered to be nothing more than superstition. And yet, mm-hmm. I, I began to get interested in it by looking, and I'm, I'm talking about the esoteric traditions. I've Of course, like many people, have read books about astrology and runes and divination methods and so on. But it didn't right. make the connection until I started writing this book or thinking about the book. You're
1: you're, you're talking about your your new book coming out in April called Real Magic. Yes. Okay.
2: So the the reason why that all came about is because I had previously written a book called Supernormal, which is about the legends Mm -hmm. within the yogic tradition about the siddhis. Siddhis is a a Sanskrit term that roughly means attainment, and it refers Mm -hmm. to the special attainments or powers that are said to arise as a result of sustained meditative practice and so there's lots of these cities some of them are levitation there's invisibility there's psychic abilities of all kinds so that book talks about these abilities and then matches it against what we have high confidence as being true from a parapsychological perspective what we can study in the laboratory so that was that's one esoteric tradition so I decided to expand it to all of the esoteric traditions and and to do that in one book. So all of the esoteric traditions is impossible actually to, because there's so many of them. So right, I right. decided instead to make a synthesis out of what, what's common throughout the entire Western esoteric tradition. And a lot of the Western esoteric tradition when you go back far enough is actually exactly the same as the Eastern. There's no difference at that point so it's it's pulling together all of them from shamanism up to the present day and make it's very clear when you do that that you end up with idealism that's the philosophical stance that all there is is mm-hmm. consciousness the physical world emerges out of consciousness that's the basic basic idea underlying magical principles true magic right so after doing that then in the book i show how ideas that have come through those traditions about the way that magic works and the way that the, of the different forms of magic, it has been tested in the laboratory. That's what we do in the lab. So the, right. the shock of realization to me was that for almost 40 years, I've been studying magic. And I, I had not thought of it in those terms at all, but that is exactly yeah. what is going on. It also explains why the topic is not discussed in the academic world. You cannot discuss yeah. magic as real in academia. You can you can certainly right. talk about it in historical terms and, and that sort of thing, but in a scientific way, you are not allowed to. There's a taboo that prevents mm. you from talking about this, even though we just recently finished a survey where we asked people not what they believe, but what they experience. And we chose... Mm. Uh, we we got a very large uh we got a company that sells uh emails where they validate that the people are willing to answer surveys and it's a broad swath right. of the united states so we got the general public and also scientists and engineers to fill out these questionnaires and we were asking about uh, about 30 different kinds of, of experiences that people have reported and just ask them how often have you or have you ever had an experience of this type, all of which were various kinds of psychic experiences? Well, so we knew in the general population the prevalence would be pretty high. And in fact, over 90% right. of the general population report at least one psychic kind of experience, that, or something that they imagined they felt was psychic.
1: Wow, 90%. Also,
2: over 90%, 92, something like wow. that. 92, wow. Wow. We then ex- expected that among scientists and engineers that they, because of the training that we have, that we'd be way more skeptical about it and maybe not right. even have those kinds of experiences. But in fact, it's also over
1: 90%. Wow. I would
2: not have guessed that. No. Well, we were surprised too, because we expected a much lower percentage. So it is you yeah, I'm thinking
1: half of them.
2: No, it's over 90%. So wow. what, what that tells us is that from an experiential point of view, scientists and engineers are like anybody else. However, education gets in the way, not that it makes you not have the experience, but it tells you what you are allowed to talk about, right? right. So people learn very quickly in the academic right. world, you don't talk about certain things. That's the definition of a taboo. And so the reason yeah. why this topic is considered so controversial is exactly the same reason why any taboo is considered controversial. There are things you don't talk about. Mm-hmm. So uh, in many ways, so you're going to talk about it. Well, it's fight club, right? What are the three rules of fight club? Right, you don't, right. you don't talk mm-hmm. about it. So that's, that's, that is largely, I think why the taboo exists and per, and persists. And I know that it's a taboo because I'm, Contacted all the time by academics and scientists and industrial facilities and even the government, who desperately want to talk about their interests and know that they cannot do so for people in inside where they where they work. Right. So wow. it, it's it's a it's a pity.
1: Yeah, it sure is. So so that's really the heart of, of real magic. That's what this book is looking at.
2: Well, the book defines what I mean by magic, what the esoteric traditions are, mm-hmm. uh, provides some history of it, provides some very simple magical techniques that, that have been used repeatedly over the years, and then speculates, well, also then presents the science that matches up, like what do we know from the laboratory that matches the esoteric lore, and they end right. up with speculations about, well, what? how do we interpret the nature of reality given that that some of these esoteric traditions look like they're are telling the way it is. It's not simply superstitious.
1: Right. Interesting. Well, I will definitely when this gets published, um, I will put a link to your book and you know put information out on there. So anybody listening to this, the book is available. Will be available at that point to to get out there and purchase. It does sound sound pretty fascinating. You can um,
2: pre-order it now. You. I mean, oh, is it available
1: I, for pre-order on Amazon? On everywhere. 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 Okay, yeah. awesome.
2: Yeah, if you go to my, go to my website, uh, either deanradin.com or .org or realmagicbook.com, uh, there's, there's a whole page with lots of endorsements that I've gotten already on it, um, and it, it could be pre-ordered from any online source.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Well, obviously, this was recorded before the book actually came out, so we're mentioning the pre-release. I will go ahead and put a kind of a teaser up about a pending interview come in and put a link to that um, pre-order. Would that work for you? Sure. Okay. All right. Awesome. So uh, that's all I had, you know, today to talk to you about. Obviously I I could sit here and listen to you the rest of the day. Did you have anything else that you wanted to to put out there or or talk about that I didn't bring up?
2: Well, one thing I can mention about uh, real magic is that uh, there, there are tens of thousands of books on magic of various types. Mm Mm-hmm and hundreds of thousands of scholarly articles on it. So it's not as though there isn't much literature. There's plenty of literature. What is new, I think, and the reason why I was interested in writing a book from a scientific perspective on magic Mm -hmm. is because it's extremely rare to find books about magic that, that are looking at it through the lens of science. And as a result, I, I went out to my scientific buddies around the world and said, I'm writing a book on magic. Uh, would you be willing to give an endorsement blurb? And so to my, my delight, many of them have. So the way, one of the ways that I advertise the book is, when is the last time that you heard about a book on esoteric magic that was endorsed by a Nobel laureate physicist by the president of the American Statistical Association, by a program manager at the National Science Foundation, by a winner of the Astrophysics Medal of the National Academy of Sciences, and by professors of neuroscience, neuroanatomy, psychology, psychiatry, medicine, blah, blah, blah. Wow. And and so the the question would be, well, never. I've never heard of that. Never. Well,
1: now you have. Awesome awesome fantastic well you've got me uh, excited to get a copy of this so I can't wait for it to come out good yeah well perfect well uh, dr. Raiden I really appreciate your timing and this was this was uh, very fascinating and I, ju- I just can't thank you enough for this
0: that concludes another edition of the consciousness podcast thanks again for listening please find us at Facebook at facebook.com slash the consciousness podcast at our Twitter handle at Conchcast. And don't forget to subscribe to our feed at theconsciousnesspodcast.com. Thank you for listening.